Okay, we're beginning our third session. We're finishing the bottom of page four on the handout, Searching and Lawning Prophets. Thanks for joining our study of First Peter online. If you're listening to the audio recording, uh, we have, once again, tables. Half of the tables are half full in here, so there's, there's room if you can come in person, but we're glad you're able to join in line. We said our opening prayer, so now we're going to jump into our study. Uh, you want to open your Bible to First Peter chapter 1. In May of 2022, a comedian gave a speech at a dinner with the press and the President of the United States. He warned the crowd not to take for granted their blessing as blessings as journalists in the United States. He remarked that it was a blessing to be able to ridicule a nation's ruler and not have to face repercussions. He wanted the journalist and dinner guest to remember that this blessing was unknown in many parts of the world and throughout history and still is rare today. He actually kind of joked then after he made fun of the president, you're not going to punish me, right? (laughs) Many others have struggled without it and even died. What about the most important blessing we take for granted? What are some of the more important blessings even than, I guess we could say, the blessing of free speech? What are some blessings, can you list some, that we enjoy today in the church, but many others before us didn't enjoy or still don't enjoy in the church? Yeah, the the blessing that we have today in this part of the world, that we can not just have free speech, but we can freely listen to God's word and gather and assemble to hear that word, to want to take that for granted. Think how many Christians died or struggle still to do that in certain parts of the world and throughout history. Well, and free speech also being able to go out and spread the gospel. Right, so not only do we have the blessing of being able to get together, hear God's word, we can go out and share it, and we're not going to get in trouble, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. At least not by the governing authorities. I think we can add to that list. We just take them for granted so they don't pop in our head, right? And the very air we breathe and the food we eat. Okay, not just uh, Christian blessings as a Christian, but just blessings that are all by God's grace. Definitely. <clears throat> what about not only that we can gather, but the fact that we have the word. Think how many Christians were able to gather in many centuries, but just didn't have access to God's word so that they themselves could read that word. Huge blessing. And not only access to God's word, but access to multiple faithful translations of that word. And not only access to that, but access to study materials so we can learn the original languages and access to all sorts of Fragments and archaeological discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls and things that other generations just didn't have access to. So many blessings <clears throat> when it comes to what we enjoy to, to have, to hear, to share God's word uh, that we enjoy today. Peter's going to also remind us not to take that for granted. So... <clears throat> Consider how many faithful prophets and evangelists endured persecution in order for you to enjoy freely reading God's word today. Uh, We had people that were persecuted, killed, condemned, even some burned alive because they wanted to get the truth of God's word out. How might we fail to appreciate this tremendous blessing? Yeah, 
simply by not gathering, uh, we, we fail to appreciate the fact that we can gather. You know, it's actually those Christians who are unable to gather that probably appreciate it far more than we do and don't take it for granted ever. Or not just gathering for church, but that, that book that we call the Scriptures, opening it, eagerly devouring it, as you see it as a blessing just to be able to have and hold it. Yeah. Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. Concerning this salvation, so we just mentioned the, the salvation of our souls that is from cross to crown as our, our faith carries us through the various trials. He says, concerning this salvation, which includes the inheritance in heaven and all the gifts from the resurrection of Christ, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. <clears throat> There's just so much we got to pause there. Um, right here you see something about divine inspiration, right? So when the prophets speak, it says, the Spirit in Christ, of Christ in them was pointing so the prophets, as Peter will later on also speak, didn't carry and speak these words of their own invention, but the Holy Spirit carried them along. Okay, um, verse 12, It was revealed to them, so revealed to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. So can you imagine a prophet saying, What does this mean? There's a Messiah, he's going to suffer? And he's going to be exalted after his sufferings. And how is this all going to take place? And then they know, oh, this isn't just for my benefit. This is for the benefit of centuries of believers who would read these words. So when the Messiah fulfills this, they will see it and they will believe. So they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So notice, just as the prophets spoke by divine inspiration, what about the evangelists and the apostles? They too, Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, spoke these things to you. And then he concludes with, even angels long to look into these things. I think there's some Christmas songs about that, you know, the angels pondering what's taking place at the incarnation and realizing the scriptures are now being fulfilled and the plan of God and how it takes place and the angels standing at you know the, the site of the, the resurrection. All right, so how do these truths... First of all, let's list three truths about scriptures we learn in these verses. So just in verses 10 through 12, what are three truths we find about scripture? Sure, yep. It's for us. They were not serving themselves but you. The reason we have the scriptures and can worship today is because of the past prophets who served us. Or as Paul says, these were written for our benefit. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, definitely a key truth. So the prophets and the evangelist, they're inspired. The, the Holy Spirit was speaking through them. Definitely an important truth to keep in mind. Yeah, the the focal point of their message is the Christ and or is 
My Bible translates it the Messiah. Same, same word, one is Hebrew, one is Greek. So they, they're pointing to the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah. So scripture was given for our benefit. Scripture was given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and evangelists. And scripture centers on the, as we would call it, the humiliation and exaltation, right, of the Messiah. Really the, the two parts of our, our ecumenical creed, the apostles and Nicene creeds, talk about how Christ suffered and how he was exalted. Yeah. Good. Those are definitely three key truths we learn from Scripture in these verses. How do they help you better appreciate the blessings of what we have? Yeah, um, the prophets certainly had some written word that they knew of. You know, we had, depending on what era you're talking, right? Uh, but it was not like what we have. You know, someone like Daniel didn't have uh, the, the prophecies that we see in Malachi. and I mean, they were written, but he didn't have them readily available at his fingertips. And you look at someone like uh, in David's time, didn't have Isaiah's prophecies. Yeah. Right. So Peter, he'll do this elsewhere in his letter too, does well to point out, um, I believe it's going to be as the, the scriptures are all, some of them are hard to understand, they're, they're God's word. And he says, including, and he, he mentions the Apostle Paul. So Peter verifies Paul's scriptures, that's much of the New Testament, as divinely inspired, on the same par as the Old Testament. So it testifies for itself, the Old and New Testament, both divinely inspired. And you have it from Peter here. Yeah. So it definitely helps us appreciate the, the scriptures as all God breathed, both Old and New Testament. Helps us appreciate we have uh, the fullness of the revelation. As I think we saw in our, our, our other studies, the, the idea that we have now the stories in full detail like the prophets didn't have. And just think about, isn't that a picture? The, the prophets searching with greatest care, intently. If someone was eagerly searching and they only had a portion of the scripture, just to figure out what was going to happen, shouldn't we be rejoicing that we can clearly see what did happen? And they're all here, yeah. So we can also search intently with greatest care, but we can see it fulfilled. Yeah. How does this section tie in with 1 Peter 1, verse 2? So that verse 1, verse 2 reads, Been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ sprinkled with his blood. Sure, you got the Trinity, because certainly it mentions the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, 
You've got the Messiah or Christ. So you've got the, the two persons of the Trinity mentioned, <coughs> along with the beginning, the three persons of the Trinity. Also, you know, if these things were spoken beforehand and God had a foreknowledge that we'd be chosen, can you picture God keeping you in mind as these prophets were recording these words? He thought about you as you would read these words. Uh, God, your God's chosen, and he chose to preserve these scriptures for your benefit, that you're part of that eternal foreknowledge and plan of God to have this word. Let's brainstorm. Can you share a few different ways we can join the prophets and angels in pondering the amazing truths about Jesus' journey from the cross to the crown? Hopefully, yeah, if your Bible study is focused on the Bible, yep, yeah. Well, preaching to the choir, right? We're all at choir here, or Bible study, rather. Taking time to delve in that word with fellow believers is one way to ponder the amazing truths, to dig into it together, yeah. And every time, obviously I'm old and I've gone through the Bible numerous times, but every time I've learned this is something yeah, that searching intently means not just, oh, I've read that book once before. It means meditate, digging, uh, just pondering over and over and over again because you'll find something that you didn't see before or you'll apply a truth that maybe didn't apply before. So continually, um, it doesn't sound like Peter saying they, they searched intently and then they gave up. They were searching, right? <laughs> Yeah. Right, so those, these truths are for our learning, whether they're Old Testament or New Testament. Good. So, right, it is useful for correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. Good. So we can do that as we gather here in Bible study, do that as you gather with fellow believers, gather with your family, open it yourself. And don't just look at it once, continue to meditate on it continually. Uh, just a quick reflection exercise. I know there's, there's hardly a wrong answer there, right? Um, if you look at the left-hand column here on this sheet, uh, I mentioned how Peter, easier said than done, he did what he preached with um, rejoicing and suffering. At the bottom, I have the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. Just think about some places in Scripture you can find those and search them. Uh, so if you want to talk about the sufferings of Christ, look at some of the Psalms of David, like Psalm 22, or the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, where you're going to see him talking about, in Isaiah 53, about the, the suffering servant. And you'll, you'll see this picture of, how can this be? The same person that's king of kings also is lowered and disfigured and is suffering and crying out and forsaken. But that's... As I mentioned in our, um, our Lent midweek series, that's what you see throughout the history of God's people, right? Uh, Joseph's suffering, Abraham's sojourning, Isaac's being offered or presented to be offered up. All the, the pictures in the Old Testament lead us to see the Messiah. All right, any other comments on that section on page four? Obviously, we could, we could do, dig in and draw a lot more out there, but we got a, another one we can jump into on page... Oops, the page number didn't come up here. Oh, yeah, I did. Okay. So going to page five next. 
This brings us to another section in our study, which the previous one, um, really I, I focused on the prophesied suffering and glory. That was a major theme that came up in the first 12 verses. Slight shift in topic as we see tying in with some of the things already mentioned, because we talk about faith and hope a lot, but Peter continues to hash out living faith, hope, and love. Uh, so often we associate that with Paul and like what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But Peter spends a lot of time cycling through the, the motif, the theme of faith, hope, and love in this letter. So we see that, especially here in chapter 1, um, just in the first chapter, I think he's going to mention faith four times, hope three times, and love three times. So it's a reoccurring theme, these three things. So that'll be our focus in verses 13 to 22. That's what we're going to take starting with page 5. Ready, set your hope. What are some things you do to get ready for work or ready for a long day or a hobby or a sporting event? Or maybe I could say get ready for a morning Bible study. Got to grab the donuts, right? So you're going out fishing on the day on the lake. You just kind of hop in and go or do you, do you get ready in some way? Got to drive there. So make sure the gas tank is full because you're not going to fill up so easily at Roosevelt. Get some extra poles for Craig. Charge the battery. <laughs> Keep dropping them in the water. Extra lines and poles for your companions. Tried it. it out right away. Throws it over the side and sunk. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> then I turned around and she's in my tackle box, taking all these hooks and sink and watching the splash. <laughs> Let's see what else floats. What else sinks? So I, I understand then why you want to bring extra supplies. <laughs> So I put that thought out there because Peter is calling on believers to have minds spiritually at ready. So we talked about how do we get ourselves ready for certain events or hobbies. How do we get our minds spiritually at ready? That's what Peter's going to talk about in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, so since you know the, the prophets, the evangelists, the angels, the Holy Spirit, all are invested in you having the scriptures, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So we have a, a command here, and my translation says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. And actually, I think the NIV did a good job translating this verse, as well as the, if you look at the EHV, they even connect it more as a flowing thought. Uh, the main verb isn't actually set your mind. 
And I, I know I, I put be ready or get ready there as the title, but it's really set your hope. So the main verb of this sentence is not, come on, Christian, work yourself up and make sure that you're spiritually sober-minded and strong. It's rather, he says, how do you get ready? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. That's what makes you spiritually ready. And he says, being fully sober. Um, that could mean sober, as in the idea of like you're not spiritually drunk. Paul talked about that, if you remember, in First Thessalonians, right? Be alert and, and sober-minded. It, it can also just mean to be at, at self-controlled. So that you're not just swaying around. Yeah. So my uh, Bible translation says, so brace your minds for action. Keep your balance. Brace your minds for action. Keep your balance. <laughs> and which translation is that one? The Messianic Jewish. Okay, so Messianic Jew. The, the correct translation is <laughs> <laughs> Brace your mind for action. Um, I have there on the side footnote, this might be a good time to go jump there. If you're familiar with the King James, <clears throat> the King James Bible, you know this Bible is around for a couple hundred years. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's what it literally reads in the in the um, Greek. Gird up your loins. So if if you're not familiar with that culture of you know they got these flowing garments to put your belt on, strap yourself in, so you're ready for action. So we don't often use the expression or idiom, gird up the loins. And it's a mixed idiom, isn't it? So gird up the loins of your mind. Same way that you get your yourself, your body ready for action with the belt. He's basically, he's, it's like he's saying, strap in your mind. Have, have a belt on your mind so that your mind can function. You had a comment? Well, you can say it's a parallel, but you get in your driver's seat, you always belt in too and get ready to drive. Right. It's pretty much the same way. So you don't go bouncing over the seat or flying out if you have to slam the brakes. So gird up the loins of your mind is a mixed picture, but I think we get the idea. And th those are good translations too, right? Set your mind, brace your mind, be ready for action, or keep your balance. Yeah. That fits with the self-controlled or sober, that you're not just staggering about. But picture that spiritually. You're not, well, I'm kind of going to read the Bible today. I'm kind of going to meditate on God's Word today. And, ooh, what's this over here? And you just kind of wander around. And you're not really watching yourself. Yeah. I usually read my meditation book first. Yeah, routines are good. Just as anybody has a, a routine to get ready for something, having a routine to be spiritually alert is a good thing. So he's calling on believers to have minds spiritually ready. Can we list some things which we might set our minds and hope on which would make us unprepared for action? Yeah, so like taking off the gird of your loins of your mind. <laughs> well, just just thinking about other things like the grocery list or the chores you have to do or what's happening with your kids or multitasking, not prioritizing. Yeah, not prioritizing. Sure, yeah, those things aren't bad. You you got to gird your loins physically, literally, to go grocery shopping and keep things in order. But if you don't prioritize, that can begin to take over. So you're not ready for action or set with your hope on where it should be. 
Yeah. And especially if that starts to take over where your hope is, if I just can get the right <clears throat> family recipe and meal, then I'll be ready instead of, what do I need to share with my family spiritually today? Yeah. And even if you do, whatever you do, do to God's glory, not yours. Even though it... Sure. Even if it's fishing. If you're taking somebody that doesn't have the ability or the means to go, but you're doing it just out of generosity or whatever, or compassion. <laughs> and so you're not, <clears throat> yeah, you're not setting your hope on those things. <laughs> so, what must we set our hope on in order to remain sober and self-controlled? Yeah, notice it's grace. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. So that's the, as I said, the key word here. When you read this verse and you're thinking, oh, how do I do this? How do I stay self-controlled and sober spiritually? Look at the gospel. Uh, set your hope on the grace to be revealed to you. So just to flesh that out, what is the grace to be brought to you at his coming? So it's talking about Jesus' second coming. What's he going to bring you in grace? What, grace is another word that can mean undeserved gift. Eternal life. So set your hope on the eternal life he's going to bring you. Forgiveness. Set your hope on all of your sins forever behind you, forgiven, as they already are, but we'll know fully what it is to be at peace with God as we see him. So this is interesting to me because it begins with like a call to action. So it gets you kind of all riled up, like, this is what I'm going to do. But then it goes... Right away, there's that reminder that it's actually not your effort. It's all about God's grace that he gives to you. So it kind of gets you all worked up and then settles you back down again. <laughs> right, and then isn't that comforting? Because we should you be ready, but the readiness comes from God. Uh, notice, what I like what you emphasized too there, to be brought to you. Set your, your mind to be ready because he's bringing what you need. He's going to give you everything you long for. Um, we talked about eternal life, sins forgiven. Uh, Peter mentioned an inheritance that's undying, unfading, unspoiling. Uh, all those things are what give us spiritual control, spiritual strength, spiritual power. Uh, setting your mind on that. Yeah, I find so much <clears throat> comfort in that phrase, the grace to be brought to you at his coming, because it's not us coming to him. He will come. And he says he'll come and bring us to be with him. And it's grace to be brought to us. It's not something we earned. Jesus is giving us this gift of eternal life and all the inheritance. And it's to be brought to you. So he's bringing it to us. Uh, Peter says we already have God's grace. Remember how the letter opened up? Grace and peace are yours in abundance. Or you could translate, be yours in abundance. So we already have God's grace. What's meant by this future grace that Christ is going to bring? Yeah. Yeah, we already have, the promises are as good as ours, but it'll be completed. As if uh, this whole idea of what God has brought us will be consummated, we'll know we now are his own. The bride is with the groom. We see him face to face. This body that is perishable will be raised imperishable. So yeah, uh, we already have God's grace, but then the full, I guess you could say, the blessings of it will be realized, seen, felt, held in our possession, even though we already do possess it. 
All right, uh, other thoughts on verse 13? Let's jump to the next portion here. Going for, We're going to read verses 14 to 17. So I, I titled this section, Children of the Heavenly Father. We mentioned already how so often he keeps on bringing in uh, the picture, Father, Son, and Spirit. He just mentioned the Spirit and the, the Son, and now he's going to mention the Father again. And he's going to ta- start talking about our relationship as children. So, quote here, Forget Batman. When I really thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be my dad. That's a quote by Paul Assey, a Christian blogger and movie critic. What is this quote and the phrase like father, like son? Why do they ring so true? Son wants to be like his father. It's what every son wants, isn't it? Well, just children pick up what their parents do. Um, like father, like son, they're both God, <laughs> the father and the son. Yeah. That's very true, true, but inwardly. Like father, like son is true heavenly, but also in an earthly sense. Uh, sons look up to their father literally, but until they're teenagers, also look up to him in many other ways as a, a hero of sorts. And that's what he's really saying. Is, Batman was a hero, but my dad was the real hero. I wanted to be like my dad. Uh, unless uh, a child doesn't have a father or the father has just completely dropped the ball, children really want to admire, look up to their parents, and sons really want to be like their fathers. Some do pick up some bad habits. Right, and that's for good or for bad sometimes. Yeah. Let's read what Peter says about that. So verse 14 <laughs> and following. First Peter 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For, you know, Peter said, the prophets, right? Here it goes. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We'll stop there. So our relationship to our father is expressed with a small play on words here. Uh, God called us, that's verse 14, right? So he says in verse 14, we're children... He who called you is holy. He's talking about God who called us. In, in Greek, that word is kaleo. And then Peter uses the same root word. He just puts an epikaleo, call upon. So, he who called you is holy. You call upon a father. That's just kind of a neat relationship play on words that shows God called you. Now you call upon your father in faith. Uh, can we list, just looking at this this section here, just verses 14 to 17, list and discuss at least five different reasons for holy living found in these verses. So what are some good reasons that Peter gives us for holy living? Okay. Well, because God tells you. He says, be holy. Right there, that should be enough reason for us to say, I'm, I'm going to strive for holiness because God tells me to. What are some other reasons for holy living? Sure. Um, I guess you kind of see that here, right? When he says you lived in ignorance. Uh, holy living is actually good for you. It's, it's foolishness, ignorance, uh, to live in sin. So it's described the, the way that we lived with evil desires as being ignorant. It's not good for you to, to sin. 
So yeah, you could include that. It's commanded. It'd be foolish to do otherwise. My Bible says at the end of 17, to live out the time of sojourning in reverent fear. And I think that, that holy living that shows reverence for God. Sure. So your holy living is reverence, showing respect, honor to the God who called you and made you his child. So, yeah, holy living is commanded. It's foolish to do otherwise. And our holy living gives us an opportunity to give worship, reverence to God. Other reasons? How about just the title that Peter first starts with here in verse 14? We're his child. Shouldn't a child want to be like their father? If an earthly child strives to be like their father, shouldn't a spiritual adopted child into the kingdom of God want to be like their father? To say, this is good. God is holy. He's kind. He's patient. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's abounding in love. He forgives. I want to be like that. It's a, a good thing. Not only would it be foolish to do otherwise, but we, we desire as children to be like our father. How about verse 17? What reason could we find in verse 17? Um, Bethany found the reason of its reverence, but what else do you find in verse 17 that gives you a reason for holy living? Okay. He's a father who judges each person's work. So there's accountability with our God. That too is a reason for holy living. That's the law. And the law stands that we will be judged for the times we did not follow his command. We did not um, carry out what we ought. And he doesn't say try your best. He says be holy. And then when you look at the description of that judging, he judges impartially. So he's not going to say, well, I'm going to let so-and-so sin slide a little bit. Their holy living doesn't have to be all the way holy. Everyone else does, but they're the exception. He's impartial. And you're not going to get a free pass just because of your situation or who you are. But we have a free pass. Right. So then we get to the gospel. <laughs> and that's why I put a note at the bottom here. So we've listed four or five reasons for holy living. Those are all really law. You know, you ought to be his child. You ought to reverence, give him reverence. You ought to listen to his command. You ought to know he's going to judge. Those are all reasons of the law for keeping holy living. But I put a note at the bottom of the page. Peter saves the greatest reason for holy living in the next verse. He's not going to leave us without the, the best reason for holy living. And that's yet to come. Yeah. Well, the, that, reverence, that reverence for God, I see that as a, a fruit of faith. Like, right. So reverence, reverence is due, but what motivates us to give reverence is his adoption, that we are his children. So there is an implied gospel, even in this section. You know, the, the idea that we can call him Father, and he's made us his own. We revere him, love him just for that. You're right, this isn't 100% law, but most of these listings in 14 to 17 are, are, are law reasons. They're, they're valid, good reasons we should take into account for holy living, but he's going to motivate us with clear gospel pretty soon. Yeah. Um, just a note here, when he says you lived in ignorance, I put a side note there in 1 verse 14. 
Ignorance is never able to be used as an excuse for sin. You can't say, well, I didn't know, or I was ignorant, I didn't have knowledge of God, or that God will somehow give a free pass to the nations that still don't have God's word. Uh, You have to read Romans 1, especially for that. Paul says they're still sinning against the natural knowledge of God, and there's still hardening of hearts. And if you look at Ephesians 4, Paul describes that, that ignorance is due to our own fault. And we certainly don't want to turn ignorance of sin into an excuse for sin. Well, they even use that phrase even today in civil courts. Ignorance is no excuse. Right. You know, even in civil courts, we acknowledge that truth. That we use to this day a lot of phrases, and that being one of them. Lots more in this section, but I don't want to leave us hanging with one more reason for holy living, so turn the page. Here's the greatest reason for living your lives in reverent fear and being holy because God is holy. It's this, verse 18 and 19. So Peter just urged his readers to sanctify living. He gave several reasons. Now he lists the greatest reason for living a new life. We were redeemed from our empty way of life. And that's what our ignorant way of life was called. It's an empty way of life, handed down to us not as an inheritance from God, but by our forefathers, our earthly fathers. Uh, A sinful nature, that empty way of life leads to death. But let's read this, verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you by your ancestors, from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Probably you caught in, in reading that some echo of, he mentioned gold again, and he mentioned perishable again. So Peter's burning up that, uh, that thought that's already been planted in your mind, uh, gold won't last. And so what do we need? We need something far more precious to, he says, redeem us. Let's discuss what makes even the best inheritance of this world still, as he calls here, an empty way of life handed down from our forefathers or ancestors. Even the best inheritance is still empty. What makes it so empty? It's not going to last. It it can't redeem your life from the pit, as the psalmist says. Uh, no one can redeem the life of another. Your, your grandparents, no matter how virtuous or how wealthy they were, can't give you what you really need. And the, the inheritance or tradition that's handed on to us is sin, death, and the grave. You didn't ask for that inheritance, but it's yours. And our forefathers, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, they earned it, and we also receive it. And we have earned it. Peter had mentioned the sprinkling of blood, so we saw that in um, chapter 1, verse 2, right? So the sprinkled blood of Christ. He had mentioned the sufferings of Christ. We just read that, right? That the prophets were searching regarding the sufferings of Christ. That's in verse 11. But this is actually, now that we've gotten this far in the letter, this is the first direct mention, and we really haven't gotten that far, this is the first direct mention of why Christ had to suffer and shed his blood. So up to this this time, he's only saying, oh, by the way, his blood was shed, he suffered. Why? And it goes to describe his blood. He was the lamb without a blemish, and he could do it for us, so we 
Yeah, so if we use these verses to describe that redemption, it was unblemished, he says, or just as God demanded, holy. We could not be holy, so someone holy stepped in our place, a lamb without blemish or defect. How is it possible that Jesus would be without sin? Not a single defect, which is what the sacrificial animals foreshadowed, a, a flawless, perfect lamb. Yeah. He is the Son of God. He is true God. And because he's true God, Jesus could not fail. Yes, his temptations were real, but he never sinned. You never have to doubt. Did Jesus maybe just once stumble, like you know, Adam and Eve, they, they stumbled in such a small way with desiring to, to eat that fruit. Did Jesus ever do that? No. He was without defect in his mind, in his body, in his thought, in his action. He was perfectly holy. Uh, so here is the true unblemished sacrifice. And I like how you pointed out, Lois, that's what we needed. If, if redemption is going to pay what we owe, we need a sinless sacrifice. How does this description of our redemption, this, he calls it the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, how does that description of our redemption that, that, that's what we were bought with. How does that further add to the reasons for living a new life? Yeah. Yeah, if, if God would give his own blood and send his son and the son would willingly live a perfect life in our place and offer up his life, God didn't just say, well, here's enough gold and silver. That wouldn't cover it. The precious blood of Christ is what bought us. That reverence suddenly is magnified even more than just we have our daily bread or uh, we've been temporarily adopted. We've been bought, paid for, with a, the greatest price that could ever be offered. So yeah, that definitely is, is gospel, what we call gospel motivation. It's not law, but gospel. The goodness of God in giving his son, the goodness of Christ in shedding his blood, his innocent blood, which means he didn't deserve to die but he did it for us to free us from the empty way of life. I put a little side note at this point or perishable things. Once again, he's contrasting our hope. He calls it a living hope with the false hope of this world. Even though most precious things which we set our hope on, like gold, are really worthless. And you can look at what Peter says in the next letter, chapter 3, verse 10. Gold will be destroyed. So here he says, silver and gold are perishable things. But the precious blood of Christ is a living hope. It will never spoil, perish, or fade. It forever stands as a testimony to your forgiveness. I so often put like such an emphasis in, in my mind that Jesus died in my place that I forget that he also lived in my place, which is equally important. Because like you can beat yourself up so much for looking back on your life for not doing things the right way especially as a parent. <laughs> but it's so comforting to know that Jesus did it correctly in your place. Right. The right way in your place. So we, we often refer to that as the active obedience of Christ. Not that just he gave himself, but he lived and did what we could not. So just after Peter says, God says, be holy, we read Christ was holy. That should be a comfort to us, uh, that he did what we could not do and gives us that holiness too. 
Yeah, and once again, uh, this is the first clear picture of Christ's suffering. It's called redemption, that he paid for us, gave himself as the price. Peter's going to keep bringing that up. He's going he's to talk about holy living, and then he's going to go, oh, and by the way, remember Christ and how he's got you covered. And that's going to be your strength. Set your hope on him and what he's promised you. He'll just keep going back and forth throughout the letter now. He said, you're, you're strangers. You're going to follow Christ from cross to crown. Okay, uh, obviously that's a, that's a good gospel in a nutshell. If you were to take a look at this section, what Peter just mentioned here, uh, you could take like that and have the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, a lot of it is found right, right there in those verses. This, this idea of the perfect Son of God came from his throne, came down from heaven, was holy, gave himself and by his blood, shed on the cross, we are saved. So it's a good gospel in a nutshell right there. Let's go to the next section, though. So, like God's holy Son. Before we had be like the Father, right? So, as obedient children, he tells us to be holy, just like the Father is holy. Now we see like the Son. So, let's look at 1 Peter 1.20, the first part. It says, He, that's Jesus, the, the perfect Lamb, He was chosen before the creation of the world. Now compare that with 1 Peter 1, 2a. And it says there, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So there's some parallels between us and Christ. Let's see if we can identify, but looking at 1 Peter 1, 20, what are two parallels Peter draws between born-again children of the Father and the eternal Son of God? So what do you see as a parallel between us as children and the one and only Son of God? Chosen Both were chosen, yeah. The, the Son did not appoint himself and uh, say, well, I'm going to do it. The Father chose the Son. That's why he's called the, the Christ. He's the anointed one, the chosen one. And that was signified at his baptism that he was chosen. You were chosen. Uh, God put his name on you. He, as Peter says, calls you his chosen people. Peter will further develop that theme. So both were chosen. And yeah, Bill, I, I think you said from eternity, right? So Paul, we see in Ephesians 1, talks about being chosen from eternity. Paul or Peter says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So long before you ever existed, Peter's saying, you were chosen. And the Son was chosen, if you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 20, chosen before the creation of the world. So before time began, really into eternity, we can say the Son was chosen to be our Savior. I want to be careful you don't say that that means God predestined sin to happen, but he knew it would happen, and he still, already from eternity, had a plan to save us. That, that's just mind-boggling. So, yeah, we're both chosen. Do you see any other parallels between us as adopted children and the, the eternal Son of God? He was chosen to be our Savior. We were chosen to be adopted. Any other parallels? What was the son chosen to face? 
suffering, death, and then glorification. What are we chosen to face? Suffering, Suffering, trials, death, and glorification. So we will be like the Son. Uh, In fact, because you are in Christ, that's the picture of being in faith and being baptized into Christ, you're going to share in every aspect of what he has. You're going to share in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification are all something that you stand to inherit as children of God. doesn't mean we're going to be gods, but we're going to be glorified with Christ and share in his glory, chosen to go from cross to crumb. How does this add to the comfort and joy of a suffering believer that we parallel in choosing and facing a path similar to Christ? We know where we're headed, right? If Christ, through his suffering, attained salvation, we, through bearing our various trials and trusting in him, will receive the gift that will be brought by Christ. And also, not only do we know where we're going, as Peter says early on, you know the goal of your salvation. It's going from cross to crown. We also know it's by God's foreknowledge or a plan God had before the creation of the world. Isn't that comforting? To know that your plan, or God's plan for you to follow Christ to glory isn't just some haphazard last-second rescue plan. It's an eternal plan set before this world began. And it, sure beats the alternative. and it sure beats the alternative of us coming up with our own last second plan. That, that to me, adds joy and comfort to suffering. Because, you know, when you're facing suffering, this is still God's plan. Or when you are looking where you're headed, you can say, well, Christ went through further trials to bear my sin. I will go through this to follow him because he's promised glory. All right, um, so on page six here, I got some side notes. Um, if you look through the middle of the side notes, it says, purified priest, ready to serve God. Peter's actually drawing on, you'll see it further developed, but he's drawing on priestly pictures. In this opening chapter, he talked about sprinkled blood, and before any priest could serve God, they had to be cleansed and ceremonially washed and sprinkled with blood. Well, he's going to continue to draw on that picture. As you read through the chapter here, he says, um, verse 20, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Okay, so there we have, once again, the resurrection. We have glorification. Um, we have salvation through faith. But I'm going to jump to verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. So this idea of purifying yourselves, that that could actually be translated, um, you have consecrated yourself. When a priest would serve God, they had to be made ready, not just girding up their loins. They had to be sprinkled with blood. They had to have the ceremonial washing basin before they entered the temple. And they had to be consecrated, that is, set apart for service to God. And they had to be called, just as um, they belonged to the family and they were born into the right family of Levi. They also had to be called, in that sense, by God. So we, too, um, are sprinkled. We are washed. We are consecrated to serve our God. You were baptized. Yeah. 
and that that washing Peter is going to get into into baptism later on. He'll talk about how that baptism saves you. So we've been set apart to serve God, just as a priest was set apart to serve in the temple. And you might say, well, pastor, I don't really see that. Well, he's going to keep fleshing that out. You're going to see him actually call you a priesthood. Uh, it's going to happen twice in chapter 2 that you are a royal priesthood. So Peter is kind of planting pictures in your mind as you read on. Like, By the way, think about how the priests were sprinkled. Think about the priests were washed. Think about the priests were purified. And now think about how the priests offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's you, believer. You have been prepared by God to offer up sacrifices, not for sin, but of thanksgiving through Christ. So that's a side note I thought was really interesting with this section. I didn't, I didn't put the verse numbers there. It'd be good to jot that down. But just to put the uh, purified. This has verse 22. So I wanted to uh, also touch base on that little side note, obedience to the truth. Some people would obviously misinterpret that, this idea that now that you have obeyed the truth, our new obedience is a result of faith. You just got to look at what Peter uses, the word obedience in chapter 1, verse 2. So he opens with obedience, but when you look at the opening verse of this, this letter, he talks about obedience is worked by God because you've been sprinkled by his blood. So obedience does not bring salvation. It's simply a result of salvation. Obedience does not purify us, but we've been made ready so that we can obey him. So always look at the immediate context. One of the ways, okay, where does, where does Peter use the word obedience? Well, it's, it's right here in the chapter. How does he use this idea that Christians are obedient? Not for salvation, but because of salvation. So that's worked by the Spirit, by those brought to faith. And also, can we take credit for our, ver our conversion? Uh, later on, we're going to see you've been born again. So this idea of been born again or been chosen, make it clear, Peter's not talking that we can in any way claim to have decided, because it says God chose you, or made ourselves part of God's kingdom. You were born into it. It's an inheritance. So you've you got to look at the surrounding context of Peter himself and the rest of Scripture and not misunderstand what Peter's saying here when he's saying you're consecrated to serve God. And actually, uh, verse 22 um, the EHV does a much better job of translating this, I thought. I don't have that before me, though. Does anyone have that? Probably the person listening to our recording can't hear it because we got like a leaf blower or something now going on. And our windows are open. Okay. Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, resulting in sincere brotherly love, love one another constantly. So resulting in sincere love, love one another constantly. Can't remember what I saw in that, that translation that stood out. Okay. Any questions on... Actually, I'm not going to finish the chapter today. Any questions on verse 22 as we conclude there? Quick review. Just look at... Um, what I have on the bottom of page 6. Reviewing the chapter to find the reoccurring themes that we've learned so far. Christ comes up, we've only read, if you count all the way to the, the end here, at verse 25, 25 verses. Christ comes up nine times. You see that? Uh, I think Jesus, along with the title of Christ, comes up maybe six times. 
Lord comes up two or three times. You kind of see what the focus of Peter's letter is, right? And that was one of the criteria in the early church to establish, is this divinely inspired? Well, does it point to Christ? I think Peter is pointing to Christ. That's his goal over and over. Christ died, Christ risen again. So that comes up nine times. Also, holiness comes up. So that's going to be a theme we see, or being sanctified. Five times he mentions that. And then I mentioned the triad, faith, hope, and love. Faith four times, hope three times, love three times. That's a theme. They're very connected. Uh, I put an exercise or a note there on the the left-hand column if you want to look at that. Resurrection comes up twice. If you're going to have hope, it it definitely sits and sets on the resurrection of Christ. Imperishable. That's a, a theme that we'll see, not just here, but continuing. And then look at the Trinity. You've got the Holy Spirit comes up three times, God the Father comes up three times, and Jesus' return comes up three times. So a threefold Trinity picture. You, you see Jesus more often, but his return just comes up three times even. So that'd be a good way to, to scan through and see those themes as you anticipate what we're going to be reading. Any other thoughts, comments on... Um, what we looked at here. I don't know if we missed any particular extra activities or notes. I have a rabbit trail question. Okay. Right, you definitely have a chasing down the rabbit hole there. When you start getting into God's foreknowledge, we can only go off of what he reveals. And when it comes to those who are not born, but their their life is taken before birth, we do know they're precious. We do know they're, they're designed by God, and God has a plan. And God alone has the right to take life. And so certainly... Where do they end up? Uh, we leave that to one we know. Without faith, you can't be saved. Without God's gift of the gospel. We do have examples. We'll be careful here, but we do have examples of children even in the womb, like the psalmist says, relying on God. Faith is not just a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the heart, worked by the Spirit. And we also have you know, examples like John the Baptist, leaping for joy, obviously has the Holy Spirit, has faith, even before birth. But that's not to say automatically, as some Christians might say, that, oh, because they didn't get a chance to be born and to sin, they're automatically going to go to to heaven. Well, nor does Scripture say that. We we just leave it in the hands of our merciful God. And besides, if you do that, aren't you then opening the door to say, abortion's a good thing because you're sending them right to heaven? (laughs) No, uh, the Bible never says that. Uh, We want to honor life, and it's a terrible thing to go against God's gift of life like that horrific thing, really. So we, we just got to be careful. Like you said, it's a rabbit hole. Don't go beyond what Scripture says. But what we do know is God is merciful, and we don't want to say beyond that anything more. And we do know children can have faith, even if they can't express it, even if they're not yet born. 
how God works at or, or where and when he works at, we leave to him. Yeah. All right, yeah, because we'll see. Peter mentions, uh, according to God's foreknowledge, uh, you're right, when you look at what the rest of scriptures say, like Paul's letters, that, that foreknowledge extends into eternity. We're part of his eternal plan. When, when God has something in his mind, it doesn't just come on the timeline. He knows it forever. All right, next time we'll pick up on uh, page 7, Born Again by the Living Word. And we're going to be looking at how we're taken from dark stone to living stone. And we're going to see the picture of priesthood come up even more. Any thoughts, comments as we close this section about what we looked at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I was surprised she was able to join us because she had a, a schedule working with someone, but God help the family, keeping your prayers, the family of Joe, uh, one of Cindy's clients, as he's been called and God has taken him, and help them with the gospel promises in Christ. Why don't we say a closing prayer about what we studied? Lord, we thank you for the, the gift of your promise of eternal life. Uh, we don't know the situation of Job, but we pray that you comfort the family by pointing them to the, the long-foretold promises of Jesus, his sufferings and the glory that would follow. We thank you for setting our hope on the glory and the gift that would be brought to us in Christ. Uh, help us to set our minds and our hearts at ready as we keep our hearts focused on, on that hope so that we can, in reverent, holy joy and also praise, live holy lives for the, the God who sent his son, the God who gave his life, his precious blood, to set us free, free from the empty way of life, to live in his kingdom and to be a royal priesthood. Let this be our focus today and always. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.